study in the Gospel of John. Thank you, Daniel. We're actually in John chapter 2. And so some of this we're probably going to move along quite a bit, uh, at, at, quite a bit um, at a more of a, a rapid pace than we had in chapter 1. But chapter 1 really sets the foundation for understanding the entire gospel. And if you don't understand chapter 1, you, I don't really feel that you can really understand the rest of the book. And so uh, it's, it's incredibly uh, foundational given to us. Uh, with what we had in chapter 1, particularly in the prologue, the first 18 verses. But we're going to pick up this morning in chapter 2. We're looking, going to look at 12 verses, so we're going to cover a lot of ground this morning. I don't know how I'll be able to do this in the time that I have, but we'll make it work. Beginning in verse 1, I'll be reading to you out of the New American Standard 2020 edition. It says, On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, What business do you have with me, woman? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Whatever he tells you to do, do it. Now there were six stone water pots standing there for the Jewish custom of purification containing two or three measures each. Now that would, that, these, uh, these pots would, would have had between 20 and 30 gallons of water in them or being able to contain 20 or 30 gallons of water uh, each in them. Uh, so Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And so they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some water out and take it to the head waiter or the master of the feast, master of the, of the, of the, uh, the meal. And, and they took it to him. And, and when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the groom and said to him, Every man who serves the good wine first. And when the guests are drunk, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, revealing his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And after this he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. And so, Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning as we look at this passage and that you would give us understanding of that which the Spirit would say to each of us. Lord, we thank you for this incredible story and how much it is that you have really packed into this for us to glean from. And so I pray that you would give us ears to hear that which the Spirit would speak to each of us this morning. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. I really like this story, but it's an interesting story in the Bible. Interesting for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is because I feel like it's so often misused. 
uh, it's it's the at least I re, you know again I'm, I'm I'm sharing from my experience. It was one of those passages that people would go to when they wanted to defend um, defend their drinking, um, defend that, that that a Christian could drink, which I I don't think the Bible teaches abstinence. To be honest with you. Um, uh, but this would be one of the passages that they would go to. And also, always the rebuttal here would be like, well, it wasn't alcoholic wine. Uh, which I always wanted to say, how do you know? Because um, I heard it in a sermon somewhere, right? <laughs> All the looks that I'm getting this morning. And, and I, I agree with that. It, it drives me crazy, to be honest with you. And as a matter of fact, I was reading, what was I reading? I can't even remember what I was reading. I was reading something earlier last week. And it was good stuff, but I was like, I wish when, when people would, would refer to something historical that they would cite their sources. Because I don't really know if there's really much basis for what it is that they're trying to claim. Um, that's what footnotes are for, folks. Anyway, um, but they, they didn't have any on this. But, but so it, it's... It can be one of those hotly contested passages, and if that is all that this passage is, has any valuable or any value for, in our thinking anyway, then we really miss the bigger picture of what I believe that Jesus is attempting to share with us, what the Holy Spirit is attempting to share with us here in this particular passage. It says, on the third day, verse 1, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Now, that, this whole idea of the third day is very, uh, um, it's very, um, a lot of speculation. A lot of speculation is going on about the third day here. And, and it is believed, and there's, again, there's different views on this, so... Your mileage may vary, uh, but there's different views on this. But but we really started all the way back from the baptism, and then the the description that uh, John the Baptist had of the baptism. This idea of the next day in verse 29, and verse 35, the next day again, and in verse 43. Then I'm talking about chapter one. Uh, in, in verse 43, the next day again. But what's interesting about the little narrative of the next day in verses 35 through 42, that really takes two days. If you've read it carefully, it takes two days. So what do we have in chapter 1? Four days. So let's do a little math. Four plus three is what? Seven. Seven. The number of completion. And... It may very well be that this is written for us in such a way that the Holy Spirit is trying to reveal to us that this particular miracle, which is a sign, that this particular miracle is trying to illustrate something greater than just the story itself. Although I might add, the story itself is a miraculous story, is it not? where Jesus takes water and he turns it into wine. Um, and so, this idea of the third day has huge theological significance. Especially in this 
chapter where we are going to be introduced to this concept. I'll get to it in a second. We're going to be introduced to this concept of Jesus' hour, where he says, my hour has not yet come. And, and so to tie this in with this, the idea of the third day, because the third day, of course, is, uh, it was on the third day that Jesus did what? He rose from the dead. What I find fascinating here, and I, and I, I looked at this, is I looked at the first, uh, first four verses of this gospel, and I went back to chapter 1 and, uh, and, and looked what it had to say here. And, and chapter 1 basically tells us, uh, these first four verses of chapter 1, they tell us in the beginning, that's 1, in the beginning was with God, that is the word was with God in the beginning, and then it subdivides that into three different statements. In chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So you have, you have the, the statement here, in the beginning was God, uh, the Word was God, or with God, excuse me, uh, subdivided into three different categories. But in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, it is also in three different categories. The first one is that the Word was in the beginning with God, right? I just mentioned that. Chapter 1, verse 3 tells us all things were made through him. All right? That's really the general description of what's going on here. That's the second one. And thirdly, John chapter 1, verse 4 says, in him was life. So three statements and then uh, embellishments and explanations in, in these first few verses that the word was in the beginning with God, that all things were made by the word, and the, in the word, all, uh, we have life. And so you have this, this, this uh, triplet uh, uh, construction going on and on in the book of John, and I would encourage you to look for more of those. And it's what the Holy Spirit does in this, using this writing style is he's dropping really big Remember I talked about one of the Jewish uh, forms of, of uh, interpreting Scripture was the hint, where that you read something and it hints about something else, right? Remember that? Okay, we'll cover this later. Nobody, re- uh, Pat remembers it. All right, so you, you, have, you have four different you have four different modes of biblical interpretation that Jews uh, ascribe to. And they would tell you that all four modes, while they are different, all of them are valid. First, there is what's called the simple. That is the plain reading of the text. Hopefully I can remember this because this isn't in my notes. And all of a sudden my mind just went completely blank. But let's see if I can retrieve it. The first one is the simple plain reading. The second one would, would be the allegory, right? Uh, or uh, or the, uh, what the metaphor represents. What does this represent allegorically? Similar to that, but a little bit different, is the third mode of interpretation is what is the hint? What is called the remets, R-E-M-E-T-Z. What, it, what is it that the scripture is hinting about? What is it implying? A little bit different than metaphor, but somewhat similar. 
Fourthly, then there is called the, I think it's the HOD, H-O-D, if you spell it in English, if, I'm, if I remember this correctly. And that is the, uh, the hidden, the hidden meaning. What's the hidden meaning? I don't know. That's why it's hidden, right? Okay. So that's, these were what rabbinical Jews gravitated toward all the way back to the time of Jesus. Um, and, and they've continued to do this even today, both rabbinical Jews and Messianic Jews, some of them, not all, some of them. Messianic Judaism, you think, you think, that, um, you think that certain Christian denominations are very diverse? Do some studying about Messianic Judaism. They're all over the map. But anyway, and that God bless them. And, and I'm, you know, there are brothers and sisters. And, uh, but, but nonetheless, there are these four different modes of interpreting Scripture. And again, the rabbis will say that they're all valid. So you have the simple, then you have the metaphor. The metaphor is also called the rash, R-A-S-H referring to the midrash. Remember about the midrash? Where you have a bunch of Jews, you put 10 Jews in a room, what do you end up with? 12 different opinions, okay? So that's, that's part of the thinking and part of uh, the cultural understanding by which John is written and by which I believe the Holy Spirit inspired him to write in. He didn't write this in 21st century American he wrote this in first century Judaism. It's always important to understand that and to remember that. So if nothing else, guys, these patterns are things that I think we need to pay attention to. Some of these patterns I wouldn't say you necessarily want to build doctrine on. I think you want to go back to the simple uh, interpretation to build your doctrine on. Nonetheless, I think they add greater color and greater dimension of our understanding of the faith. And that's why I brought it up, and that's why I think it's important. So, um, the third day, very important in Scripture. Although, the interesting thing about the third day, this is the only time it's mentioned in the Gospel of John. Now, it's implied, it's referred to, but the phrase, third day, this is the only time we'll see it in the Gospel of John here in chapter 2. They go to a wedding. They're in Cana. Remember, before this, they, uh, they were down in the area of Galilee, of, of Bethany of the Galilee, Galilee, which is east of the Jordan River, and it would take about two days' journey for healthy people to walk from Bethany to Cana. All right? Cana is... is um, due south, if you will, or very close to being due south of Nazareth, all right? So the wine runs out. They're at a wedding, and the wine runs out. So we have problems because unlike particularly conservative evangelical Christianity today, Judaism and Jews... Uh, uh, they drank. They drank. Now, a few of them didn't. Can you think of any who didn't? Those who took a Nazarite vow, they were not to eat of or drink of the fruit of the vine. Of course, they weren't supposed to cut their hair either. 
They were more of the ascetics. John the Baptist was this way. Remember, they, uh, Jesus says that, that, that John the Baptist came in neither eating or drinking. And what did they say about him? He has a demon. The Son of Man comes both eating and drinking. What does that mean? He drank wine, all right? At least that's how I'm interpreting it. Your knowledge may vary. The Son of Man comes both eating and drinking. What do they call him? A glutton, and my favorite term in the Bible, a wine-bibber, which I absolutely have no understanding what that means. But obviously, if they called him a wine-bibber, that means he probably drank wine, all right? And they criticized him for it. Anyway, you're at this wedding. It was very important to serve wine at the wedding. And the interesting thing about Jewish weddings, the, 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 it wasn't the bride's parents who foot the bill. It was the groom. The groom foot the bill. And, and to run out of wine was an incredibly embarrassing thing to have happen. You just didn't do that. Now remember, and this is from the book of Tobit, uh, which is a non-canonized uh, book that, that is, is Hebrew literature. And, and they talk about certain wedding uh, feasts and certain wedding parties and receptions that would last even as long as a week. I know you've all heard that before. But it, it also, as I'm reading this, it also told me that not every wedding reception lasted that long, okay? Um, but it was, it, was also, it was a customary thing that, that, uh, it, that a wedding could extend and normally would last for up to a week. So um, wh- they run out of wine. And so Mary who may have had something to do with helping out and being a part of, it tells us in the New New American Standard, what's the phrase that's used in here? The head waiter or the master of the feast. It, It tells us in other versions. Mary may have been connected some way. This could have been a relative. We don't know. Uh, All we know is that Mary knows that there's no more wine to be had. So she comes to Jesus and basically just says that to him. If there was something else said to him, it's not recorded. Mary shows up and says to Jesus, they have no wine. And Jesus says to him, what business do you have with me, woman? That's the New American Standard. I'll read it to you um, out of the New King James as well. Or it says, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. Now that phrase, woman, was not a derogatory name. It was not a derogatory way of addressing someone. It was not normal for a son to address his mother in that way. It was a polite address. But it wasn't necessarily reflective of the relationship between a mother and a son. And it's possible that Jesus, having just started his ministry here, uh, is needing to set some proper boundaries with 
people and particularly even his Jewish mother. If you know stories about Jewish mothers, right? And incidentally, this is the last time we read about Mary until chapter 19. Here in the Gospel of John. I find that to be fascinating. And so she comes to Jesus and says we, that we're out of wine. Now wine is a symbol here. Understand this. It's a, a connecting the physical with the spiritual, but it's, it's a symbol here. And wine is often a symbol in the scriptures. I'm not going to take the time to look at them. We kind of looked at this not too long ago, but wine is a symbol of joy, in, particularly in the Psalms. And, and uh, the use of wine. Now, I'm, again, Every time I, I, I feel that some of you in your thinking is like, well, what about the person who drinks too much? Well, I'm not talking about those folks. And this Bible, I don't think, is talking about those folks. Does the Bible condemn drunkenness? Yes. But the Bible does not teach abstinence. So if you drink or if you choose to drink, Find a medium in there somewhere. If you choose not to drink, that's you do as unto the Lord. We looked at this in the book of Romans, did we not? Regarding drinking and eating and all this. Gosh, I, I don't want to repeat myself, but, but, but I think it's important to understand the symbology here is that we do see in the Scriptures wine is a symbol for joy. And it, it, it is one of God's gifts that he's given to humanity. And just like any gift I think that God has given to humanity, we can abuse it if we are not good stewards of the gift. Does that make sense? Can we be done with that now? Okay. Um, Psalm 104, verse 15, it says, Wine gladdens the heart. Wine gladdens the heart. Makes the heart glad, right? Isaiah 55, verse 1 says, Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. So what you have here is all of a sudden the element that produces joy in the wedding feast, the wedding reception has now been removed. They've ran out. Who knows why they ran out? I'm not going to bother to speculate. To me, it's not important. And Jesus says to Mary, my hour has not yet come. Some translations have time, but uh, this is better translated hour. And it's this, this phrase, my hour, is constantly being used, uh, really, uh, in John, referring to the death of Jesus on the cross, but also referring to his exaltation that is connected with his death on the cross, none other than what? The resurrection. 
And so he will use this phrase again in chapter 7 and in chapter 8 and in chapter twice in chapter 12, again in chapter 13, again in chapter 17. Uh, This idea of the hour, this hour where Jesus will come uh, and will be glorified. And in his glorification, he will glorify the Father. Now, Mary is a very good Jewish mother. In other words, she's persistent. And she doesn't give up. And she looks at the servants and says to the servants, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Obviously, she had some type of responsibility in this wedding, I think. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. Do you realize how incredible that advice is that Mary gave not only the servants, but really giving to us as well? Let's take it out of the story just for a second. And, and, and let me encourage you that whatever he tells you to do, do it. Let me encourage myself that whatever he tells me to do, to do it. And then to trust in it. And to rest in it. And have faith that you did hear the voice of God. Then you responded to the voice of God. And you were obedient to the voice of God. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. And, and I can imagine what Jesus must have been thinking here. I don't know if he, he let out a Jewish, oh, they, I don't know. Nonetheless, he worked with the situation. And it tells us that there were six stone pots standing there for the Jewish custom of purification. Now, Passover's close. We'll, we'll look at that next week, okay? They're standing there for the, the Jewish custom of purification containing two or three measures each, or between 20 and 30 gallons. These things were big. It's a lot of liquid. And this idea of purification, this idea of purification was was, uh, uh, conscribed in in the Jewish law, but it was also became, Mark 7 talks about this, it also became this idea of rituals where the, 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 the Pharisees and others would add to that which the Bible had declared and they would say, yes, you have to do it this way, and it has to be done that way. And, and this whole idea of ceremonial washing and this whole idea of being ritually pure, which was given to us in the Old Testament, but it was, <clears throat> excuse me, it was those things which Christ came and did away with because he was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. The lamb that was without blemish, the lamb that was without spot. And he took away the sins of the world. And so I believe, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but I think this is also a good time to interject, is I believe that, that um, that's what this miracle is really speaking about. He is replacing not only that which was given to, to the children of Israel by Torah, 
but also those things that were added on to the uh, commandments of God by men. Which God never had anything to do with, by the way. And it became burdensome. Represented by the water. Used for purification purposes. And Jesus says, it is now going to become wine. It is now going to become joy. To me, that's the whole significance of this whole idea of the wedding feast here in Cana. But another reason that I've never, I just saw this, well, I saw it out of a, the writings of Eusebius of Caesarea. Because in this passage is the prophetic fulfillment. Let's turn to Isaiah 9. I'm going to read it to you out of the New King James, chapter 1, uh, sorry, verse 1. Isaiah 9, verse 1. I'm going to read it to you out of the New King James, and then I'm going to read it to you again out of the Septuagint. The Septuagint, as you know, is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 9. Verse 1 says, nevertheless, got to back up, Isaiah chapter 8. Sorry, Daniel, I know that's a, if you'd, if you'd bring a Bible with pages, well, you're not. So let me know when you're there. Isaiah 8, the last verse or two. All right. It says in verse 21, they will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry. I don't have time to back up, and I would like to, but I don't have time for that. You can read chapter 8 later if you like. And it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. They will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom and anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. Nevertheless, okay, they will be driven into darkness, all right? Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed as when at first he lightly esteemed or did not think much of the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali and afterwards more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in the Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Now a very quick history lesson. That region, this is, number one, this is talking about the region where uh, Canaan is. It's also the region where Nazareth is. Or, and, and it's the region north of Jerusalem quite a bit. It was actually originally a part of one of the ten tribes. And in 722 B.C., the ten tribes went into captivity. And they were dispersed all over the known world by the Assyrians 
who also brought into the region of the Galilee. That's why it's referred to the Galilee of the Gentiles. Also, the Assyrians brought in Gentiles from other regions where We're good. Um, brought in Gentiles from other regions where they had conquered them. And that's how they dispersed people. So they kept people off balance by bringing them into new lands. So the, the region of the Galilee was a mixed area, both Jew and Gentile. All right? Isaiah 9 is prophesying about what's taking place in Canaan. What's interesting about this Again, I'm reading Eusebius because Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 in the Septuagint reads rather differently. Let me read it to you. Drink this first. Act quickly, O land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, and the rest inhabiting the seacoast and the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Eusebius is writing about this, and he says that this is a fulfillment of the Septuagint version where it says, drink this first. It's a fulfillment of the Septuagint version of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 11. To me, that, that fascinated me because I had never seen that before. Um, and, 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 and they were, this idea of this Water being turned to wine, as Eusebius refers to it as this, this miracle, this mystical wine, if you will, that is a wine of faith of the new covenant that transforms from the body uh, joy to a joy of mind and spirit. See, this, this idea of, of recognizing that the physical represents something spiritual. We do that in baptism, do we not? We do that in communion, do we not? And, and this idea of something from bodily joy to joy of mind and joy of spirit. That's what uh, Eusebius wrote about. I think he's on to something here. I really think he's on to something here. And, and this again, this miracle represents Jesus making this incredible statement that it is no longer the act of ritual purification that was outlined in Torah, that was added on to by some of the Jewish leaders, including the Pharisees. But it is about the joy of relationship with him. And... and Interesting that they, they fill the water pots. They have no idea what they're doing other than doing what they're told. And then Jesus says, draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And the head waiter tastes it and he says, ooh, that was really good. Now there were six. Six is the number of man. Six between 20 and 30 gallons. You have about 120 to 180 gallons of, of incredibly good wine. That wedding feast is going to last for a long time. I don't know how long, many days that had been going on. 
But this fascinates me because the headmaster has the head waiter has no idea what's going on. Uh, he they, he did not know where the wine had come from. The servants who drew the water did. And it, it strikes me too that 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 if if you want to be to be included in the secrets of God. Because it is the joy of kings to, to search out a matter. It is the joy of God to do what? To conceal it. But if, if you want to be in that place where you are searching out a matter and, and, and the Lord reveals these things to you, then it's a calling just to be obedient to his voice and do whatever it is that he tells you. And then to trust that that which you have done, you did because it was an act of obedience and you did hear his voice. And it says every man, he, he, he tells uh, the groom, he gets the groom involved in this. The groom's busy hanging out with guests and, you know, doing what they do at Jewish weddings. And, and, and uh, but he says every man who serves a good wine first and the guests are, when they are drunk, now that word drunk refers to not being intoxicated. That word is that word drunk is not translated intoxicated. All right? It simply means when they have drank. That's what it refers to, all right? Like I just did. But when they have drunk, then he serves the poorer wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Interesting that the God of the universe kept the good wine until this point. I, I'm glad I'm, I'm, I live in, in, in this particular time of grace rather than to live in the time of law. I'd be, I would have been out of animals like the first week, I think. and it, I don't know what I would be doing. But this is one of those scenarios where God has kept the best, if you will, for last. Interesting, though, this whole story is tied in with what? His hour. His hour. His time of, of where he is glorified and he glorifies the Father. The other thing, too, here is that wine is a symbol not only for joy, but wine is also a symbol for what? We do it in communion. It's a symbol for blood. Blood is a symbol for what? Life. In life is the blood, Leviticus tells us. And so rather than acts of ritual obedience, which were important, by the way, all right? especially if you're under the law. What I think this passage is telling us is that he came that we might have life and that more abundantly. Again, one of the things that's written that, we, that I mentioned at the beginning of this message is that verse John, excuse me, verse 4 of chapter 1 of John says, in him was life and the life was the light of man. He comes that we might have life and that more abundantly. 
And then it tells us in the beginning of his signs, excuse me, verse 11, this is the beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and revealed his glory. And his disciples believed him. Now, it, in, in, it, when John uses the word signs, which he will several times, he's always, with the exception of here in John 2, every other time, he uses this, this idea of a miracle that conveys a deeper teaching. And that's true here, but it's also kind of more along the lines of the hint, more along the lines of even the hidden. Because I, I, I wonder what this is going to represent to us when we're all in eternity. And, and does, and I don't know, but I'm ask, I'll throw the question out for you to entertain. Does the wedding feast that is talked about at the end of the book of Revelation play into this at all? It might. It might. But often when we see this idea of signs, and we'll, we'll, and we'll see this where Jesus performs these miracles and then he teaches and using the miracles as illustrations of the teaching he's desiring to give us. We'll see that again and again in John. We'll see that with John when, when, when Jesus makes these, what they're called seven I am statements. Really important stuff. And then has subsequent teachings about what Jesus says about these seven I am statements. But here he is. This fascinates me too. Because I, I almost imagine that they're kind of sitting. They sit at those low tables, right, in the Middle East. He's sitting around with his disciples. Probably enjoying the wedding. He probably didn't get up to tell the servants what to do. He probably said, just fill those with water. Now go take that and give it to the head waiter. Among other things that, that a lot of commentators talked about as well is that, that obviously here Jesus is giving his um, endorsement of marriage. You know, John was an ascetic. John probably came out of the desert with the Essenes. The Essenes, if you know much about them, they were all celibate. None of them got married. That doesn't seem to be a good way to keep this whole particular group moot, but I digress. It's not good for their longevity, let's just say. But what we see here is that Jesus is revealing his glory because not only does he have the power to change physical elements, taking water and turning it into wine, which I believe this literally happened exactly as it's described. But if he can make water into wine, what else can he do? What else can he do? Anything he wants. If he can take the rite of purification and say, I'm replacing it because I will be that sacrificial lamb and I'm going to replace it with a joyous relationship with me. What else can he do? 
Do you have empty pots today? So that's the question. You got six water pots here. They were they were empty. Is your pot empty? Does it need to be filled? I mean, I could go off on the water is also symbolic of whom? The Holy Spirit. John 7, we'll see that again. Holy Spirit and joy, come, they go together. See, there's so much here. I don't even know where to, where to start and stop on this passage. But do you have an empty pot? And are you willing to do what Jesus says when he says to fill it? Again, all this was prompted by what we have in Scripture, Mary saying, they have no wine. Jesus saying, in the most polite terms, really, that's not my problem. Because it's not time for me yet. But then he uses the occasion to preach the incredible gospel. Not only to them there who had ears to hear, but to us this morning as we have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us even now about what is written here in this passage. Ask him to fill your pot. Ask him to restore your joy. And be obedient to that which he's called you to do. 